Hi, it's Hanky here. Just a fair warning, trying once again to keep everything PG-13, but you might hear a little bit of foul language. So if you're sensitive, you've been warned. Numbers. Numbers, they say, never lie. But to be honest with you, they sometimes fib. Over the past several years, the uh, export numbers, as reported by the Federation of the Swiss Watch Industry, otherwise known as the FH, have been a hot topic of conversation for those of us who cover this business. But more importantly, and I think more pertinently, it's been a real point of contention uh, and contentious discussion by the people who not only import and distribute, but those who are actual retailers of Swiss watches. I think it's important that we get a little bit of context going back. And I guess really, if we're going to look at this holistically, we've got to go way, way back to when the industry almost crashed. And uh, obviously, I don't want to dig out a shovel and start uh, going back in time to that extent. But we can think about it pretty basically that, you know, obviously in the 70s, the industry almost imploded. It was very close. Um, Mr. Hayek and some very other smart people came in, um, basically reorganized things and to some extent turned the industry on its head. Uh, But out of that, what we now know as the modern Swiss mechanical watch industry was born. And along with that, obviously, um, a begrudging adaptation of uh, quartz technology as well by several Swiss labels. So let's say that that's, that's the starting point. And from that, things just tended to grow. And to some extent, for a lot of people, that growth seemed very organic, very natural, very realistic. And at the time, I don't think anybody knew any better. Um, certainly, there was growth. Certainly, there were sales going on. But I think more importantly, there was also a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that would lead you to make some assumptions about the industry that probably the rest of the people involved in it weren't so comfortable in sharing. And chief among those was that in a lot of instances, there wasn't real growth, at least not growth from the from the type of sales and the type of uh, markets that you would expect or that you would think. So today uh, on Hanky Time, we're going to be talking about numbers. We're going to be talking about what they really mean. We're going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite and yet again, least favorite subjects, which is the gray market. And it should be kind of interesting. So stick with us and we'll keep going. So it's important that we get a little bit of context here. And I wanted to hop in the Wayback Machine and revisit um, a blog post that I put out back in January 2017 entitled The Watch That Saved Christmas or How the Grinch Overslept in the Swiss Watch Industry Lived to See Another Day. Uh, At that time, the belief was that the bottom hopefully had been reached. Um, We found out later that it hadn't quite, but essentially it would be fair to say that most of the prognosticators out there thought it couldn't really get much worse than it was. So that we have um, some understanding of where things were, the numbers closed at a negative 4.6% in terms of export. And in the words of the FH, um, their quote was, at negative 4.6%, exports reported one of the shallowest falls for the year. 
Um, and that's a little bit like giving yourself a participation trophy, um, or I guess putting it more bluntly, it's a little bit like your teenage son letting you know that his girlfriend is only a little bit pregnant. Um, essentially, it really means that things are pretty bad and hopefully they've hit the bottom. But truthfully, I don't know. Um, those were those are some pretty dark times. And what's intriguing when I look back on it is that it wasn't all so much that everything happened all at once. I mean, this had been a gradual drip, 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 and it was continually getting worse, continually getting worse. And you saw brands continue to do truthfully very foolish things with their money. Um, there was crazy stuff like um, pumping in millions of dollars to advertise for a an America's Cup team to put your brand's name on the sale. And then the very same brand within the same week would be laying off several employees. Um, and it kind of begs the question of, you know, how proud can you be of the brand that you work for when, you know, reading the newspaper as you stand in line to pick up your unemployment benefits, you see the big splashy advertisement of your former employer um, pumping even more money into a sport that really could care less about how you're doing. You know, you're not going to be buying new skis or new ice skates for little Billy or Susie for the upcoming Christmas. So it, it kind of made me question a lot about what reality these brands and more importantly, their marketing and PR offices were living in because the numbers just really didn't support it. The, the sales were in the toilet. You're laying off people. And yet you're thinking if you fling more poop against the wall, uh, hopefully some of it's going to stick. Now, long story short, um, it, the, the poop didn't really stick. The poop just stunk and things continue to get worse. And it really wasn't until truthfully last year when things started to smell a little bit better and a little less poopy, the numbers started gradually climbing up. Now, a lot of people thought, hooray, we're saved. Um, and again, that was kind of a false dawn because what was really happening at that moment and what a lot of people don't like to talk about, but what really was the reality was that the regulations were starting to change and they were going to be enforced. And what that meant was that all of these brands that had shit tons of stock sitting in their distribution ports that had not gone out yet needed to start getting it out of the country really, really quickly. And so what last year really bore and what was really brought to light by those of us who were really looking at it was that, in fact, a lot of these bigger companies, and by that, you know, we're talking about the groups, and the groups have subsidiary offices, and the subsidiary offices are in countries like, I don't know, um, the United States, Italy, Singapore. Suddenly, those numbers started going up dramatically. Now, again, when we're talking about dramatically, we're talking about a dramatic increase from where they were, because when you're at... Um, a negative number like that to suddenly be up to a 0% loss to, in fact, then suddenly you're improving on your export numbers, that would give you the impression that sales must be through the roof. Now, curious to relate that, in fact, for the majority of retailers um, out there in general and North America specifically, the sales weren't that dramatically better. But something else interesting was happening at the same time. and 
if you follow these things or if you're um, a curious conscientious value shopper what you noticed was suddenly all of these great amazing brands were available through let's say not a hundred percent authentic retail outlets that's another kinder gentler way of saying the gray market so for those just tuning in uh, or those who are not really familiar with what I mean or really what anybody else means when we talk about gray market essentially what we're saying is that this is a retail outlet that is not officially authorized by the brand as an authorized retail partner obviously these days we see it on the internet but again the gray market is not a new phenomenon the gray market has been in business probably as long as there has been watch retailing and the way that it used to work was that um, retailers and distributors would meet in a, let's say an unmarked room in the back of a conference hall at um, at one of the shows could be Basel world could be JCK could be couture uh, essentially they would say I've got this many of brand X are you interested yes I am the price would not be the traditional um, retail marker of 50% or what is often referred to as Keystone, it would be far, far south of that number. And so for the gray market retailer, this is a great opportunity to buy a bunch of watches and essentially flip them very quickly. So the disadvantage of this, of course, is that you do not have any marketing. You do not have a true, um, a true warranty that you can stand behind. You know, you're offering your so-called in-house warranty, but if you're the gray marketer, if you're that if you're that massive outlet that's going to basically just pump a shit ton of product at a very low price, it's not such a bad business model for you because you're not pumping in that much money on the front end. Your business model is predicated on the notion that you're going to churn through that product very quickly. And if you're playing the odds, chances are pretty good that the defect rate hopefully is going to be pretty low, meaning you're not going to have to stand behind and service too much of this. So let's say that that's the backdrop. Now, let's flash forward to where we are now. And where we are now in terms of looking at the bar graph is a little bit deceptive. Because if we look at um, both December or January's numbers, the argument could be made, well, hey, in December, the actual export numbers were up. And those numbers were up by 0.5% in Hong Kong and a massive plus 7.9% in the US, 1.7 in Japan, 3.1 in the United Kingdom and mighty Singapore came in with a positive 2.7. It would be easy to infer, therefore, that hallelujah, things are going better and we're back on top. But what it's not taking into account is in fact that that number represents a drop from months previous. And if we're looking at the arc of the entire year, sales peaked somewhere around January, February, March, April, May, June, maybe July, which is kind of an odd month for them to be high. And let me clarify this because I say sales. And if you're looking at it that way, that would be an easy conclusion to jump to. But in fact, that's not a sales number. That's an export number. And it's kind of a curious export number because there's not a whole lot of sales going on in July. In fact, July is right before all of the companies and the factories close for the Swiss watchmakers holiday. 
um, September, October, and even November are not what I would call traditionally high sales months. So it's a little bit of an anomaly that you would see a peak there and then suddenly the export numbers started dropping pretty rapidly and they dropped down to where they are now. And if you look at a graph, and I would encourage you to go to the FHS.Swiss website and see for yourself, it's, it's free for the public, and you'll notice that there's a downward trend. Now, again, the argument is going to be made, well, things are great because we're at plus 5% from last year. But let's remind ourselves that last year, sales were in the toilet and exports were in the toilet. So looking at all of that, let's let's take a let's take a positive and optimistic look at it and say, well, that's still great. You know, the export numbers are up. Therefore, sales must be up for the retailers and therefore our brand is doing better. Well, not necessarily so, because exports don't equal sales. And in fact, let's go into it a little bit deeper for the retailer. The retailer will tell you that having a watch sold by the company does not necessarily mean that it was a watch that was sold by a retail partner. So think about it this way. You're the watch distributor, and I'm, I'm going to break this down on two levels. Let's look at it from the, the position of the distributor. So you're an independent company. You're an independent entity. You have the rights to brand X in the United States. And part of your agreement says that you're going to order X number of watches. It's going to cost X amount. And you are going to pay for some promotion. You're going to help take care of after-sales service. You're going to have an advertising budget. And you're going to ensure that the brand is represented in all these stores. Now, for the people who are doing this, um, let's say, out in the light of day and doing it the way that it's supposed to be done and doing it in the spirit of the agreement that they have with the brand, that means that... Um, Ideally, it's on a cash basis or worst case that we're talking about 90 days uh, from the time that they deliver a watch to the time that they're being paid by the retail partner, that they're living up to their end of the bargain in terms of support and helping to promote the brand, and that the retail store is paying their bills on time, and everything is the way that you would want it to be. Well, you know, two things, actually probably more than two things, but several things are standing in the way of that actually happening. Now, the first one is that overall, despite what the FH would tell you, watch sales are down. If you speak to any retailer who's being honest about it, and if you ask them, how much are you selling at the suggested retail price? The majority of them are going to tell you that it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough road to hoe. They're not able to sell as much. They're competing with the gray market who are selling a similar product or sometimes the exact same watch at 30 to 40% off of retail. So it's very hard for them to compete there. They are, they have a lot of overhead. They have customers who are looking for the best possible price and it becomes harder and harder for them to insist upon retailing, retailing a watch at the full suggested price. So their price points are going further and further south. Now, that has a knock-on effect because they now have less margin. They still have the same overhead that they had before. They've got a storefront. They've got rent to pay. And even if they own the building, they still have expenses and maintenance there. They have payroll that they have to meet. They are doing local advertising, which is sometimes not supported by the brand. 
and sometimes not even supported by the distributor. And they are going to pay the big dogs first. So think about it this way. Swatch Group, Richemont, LVMH, they all, as far as I know, have dedicated departments that are solely devoted to collections. So what that means is that it is literally almost like having a credit card company that's calling you on a monthly basis saying, where the hell's my money? Where the hell's my money? Where the hell's my money? To where the retail's like, well, I didn't sell any. And the collection agency is essentially saying, fuck you, I don't care. Where the hell's my money? And if you had at one point Omega, Blanc Pond, if you had Jaeger LeCultra, if you had IWC, if you had Panerai, if you had Tag Heuer or Hublot, and suddenly you don't have it, it's a problem. Because uh, suddenly your customers are going to feel like, well, they don't have the same collection that they did. Um, and truthfully, it's even more than can you satisfy what the customer wants right then and there. It's also a question of perception. Because now it becomes harder and harder for you to pee in the tall weeds with the other big dogs. So suddenly now you're not going to have the same cash flow that you did and you're going to stop paying your bills on time. And so if you're the distributor, now this is a problem for you because guess what? You've got kids in college. You've got a mortgage. Um, you've got bills to pay. So how are you going to get out of this? Well, more and more the easiest solution is that you're going to start dumping product and that sounds a little bit blunt but that's truthfully what it comes down to um you will connect with or more realistically the gray marketer will connect with you uh a deal will be struck and you will start offloading as much of your product as you need to now i I know a lot of people in the business. I'm not saying I know everybody, but let's just say that I know enough people that I have a pretty good indication that this is not an, a watch urban myth. This truly does happen. So once that starts happening, uh, as one distributor has told me, he said, it's, it's a lot like heroin. That first hit is going to give you this incredible high and suddenly you can pay your bills and everything's great, but it's a pretty slippery downhill slope from there. It becomes harder and harder for you then to maintain the relationship that you had with your retail partner. Um, and then other brands are not idiots. Uh, when you go to romance them at Basel World, at JCK, whatever show it might be, and try to convince them that you're the dog's balls and they should absolutely trust you to represent their brand, they're not idiots. They're going to start looking around. They're going to see what other brands you have. And then they're going to do a Google search and see where those brands pop up in terms of who's carrying them. And then they're going to see that all of those brands as a group collectively are being sold at 30 cents on the dollar through gray market site X. So what started out as a temporary measure that you're going to hopefully keep the wolf from the door and the market's going to right itself and everything's going to be great basically puts you into this trap that you are not going to be able to get out of and essentially you're stuck. Okay, so that's scenario number one. And in essence, it has had two kind of knock-on effects. It has definitely made life harder for the retailer. It has also made things harder for the uh, distributor. Let's talk about scenario number two. And this one is well known at this point, but not really talked about too often because it's uncomfortable. But the truth of the matter is that the gray market is not just supported by the um, anxious or desperate 
independent distribution partner. The gray market at this point is greatly funded by the watch brands themselves. And before you say, oh, I can't believe that or that can't possibly be true, I'm calling bullshit because it is true. Um, you go into a Basel World appointment in the very next meeting or standing there at the counter right next to you in a very nice suit is someone from a gray market outlet. They're having exactly the same meetings. They're meeting exactly the same sales reps and they're striking deals. And they're striking deals that are shockingly good because they're getting the product directly from the brand. And they are then in turn flipping it over and selling it through their channel. Now, on the one hand, you can say, well, you know, that's fine. The brand makes their own decision. And absolutely the brand does. But once the brand goes down that path, it's a little bit like a poison pill. It might not kill you right away, but slowly over time, it makes it harder and harder for a retail partner to want to work with you. And then here's the knock-on effect. Let's imagine that you're the customer and you, at this particular moment, you don't have a lot of money, you know, but you want, you've been dreaming about this one watch and suddenly, boom, there it is. It's on gray market store X and hey, guess what? It's 30% off. Is it legitimate? Oh my God. Yeah, it is. All the feedback's good. Um, it doesn't have the brand warranty, but this other company is going to stand behind it. Um, you know, to the best of your knowledge and anybody else's, it's not a knockoff and you pull the trigger and you're happy until let's say the bug bites and you want to buy that next watch and that next watch means that, you know, you're probably going to want to flip the watch that you have because it's a little bit, for some of us, it's a little bit like a car. You can only drive one at a time. So you get yourself one nice watch at a time and you kind of, as Torno would say, you trade in and you trade up. Well, now something else has happened because the market is flooded with so many of exactly the same watch that you have and the price has dropped dramatically. Suddenly your watch is worth even less than what you paid for it originally. And you already paid 30% off for it. So now you're a little bit in what is sometimes called the sunk trap paradigm, meaning that you feel like you're kind of stuck with this watch because you're not going to get nearly as much out of it as that you put into it. It's not going to be nearly as worthwhile to try and flip it. So it's going to gather dust and sit in your desk drawer or whatever it's going to do. And you're going to look for that next 30% discounted watch, still not getting the watch that you really wanted. And time's going to move on. And let's say we're three years down the road and you're going to have like five of these watches um, gathering dust that you can't really shift because you feel like you've invested too much. And this is to a large extent what perpetuates the gray market. The gray market by and large is not fed by that one individual who wants that one watch. The gray market is fed by the collector. And this in turn has the knock-on effect that the brand's perceived value continues to drop and denigrate. So now we've got a third victim in this. You know, we had originally the distributor, then we had the retailer, and now we have the customer. And the customer's feeling like they got hosed. They definitely got the fuzzy end of the lollipop on this deal because they feel like I spent this much money, I own this watch, and now it's not worth that much. And now if you think that person feels like a chump, talk to the person who actually bought that watch at full retail from their authorized retail partner. Okay, yeah, you've got it. So let's say that that's a bit of the backdrop. That's a bit of where we are with the gray market. But when we come back, I'm going to offer up a solution. I'm going to throw out a crazy notion about how we could clean this whole thing up and make it work for everybody. So stay with me.
Okay, for those keeping score at home, I think it's probably in our best interest to do a recap. So again, the main theme of today's pod is really kind of twofold, actually. First one being the export numbers, uh, as posted by the FH. And then the second piece being um, what might be the explanation behind those export numbers. We're predicating a lot of our belief in the health of the industry on the export numbers. And the export numbers would lead us to believe that if the export numbers are up, therefore sales must be up. And in fact, um, albeit uh, strictly anecdotal evidence, the anecdotal evidence when speaking to retail partners or even distributors is that in fact sales are not up. So where are all the watches going? Um, what we, you know, what is safe to assume is that the watches are going somewhere. Now, one thing that definitely triggered a lot of exportation of watches over the last couple of years was the implementation of the more stringent new Swissness regulations, which means that the percentage of what a watch had to contain and the value was increased um, so that it was more Swiss than it was before. So, you know, a little um, a little bit of a painful secret, which is not really a secret, is that, of course, to be a Swiss label watch, meaning that you can claim that you're made in Switzerland, your watch does not need to be all fully made in Switzerland. Uh, it has constituent parts coming from all over. Um, there are some brands that play it extremely fast and loose. And let's say that that watch is no more Swiss than I am. And for the record, I was born in Zanesville, Ohio. So it's it's kind of always been a moving target. It um, is important, obviously, to have some regulations and some policies. And I, for one, think it's good if they um, make it more and more stringent. Now, for those of you who say that can't possibly be so, that, of course, you know, this watch is fully down home made in Switzerland. I would ask you, have you ever visited Switzerland? Have you ever tried to pay for a meal in a restaurant? Have you ever taken a taxi? What these experiences will inform you of is that Switzerland is freaking expensive. It is not an inexpensive place to even visit. So try to imagine that you have a company whereby in your company you have overhead, you have people that you need to pay, you are trying to produce something or at least pay someone else to produce something and put your label on it, you then have to sell it. And if you're trying to tell me that you can get a fully Swiss-made self-winding mechanical watch that is going through a distribution channel, so in other words, that there are other people taking their cut and you can have a suggested retail price of $550 and that watch is completely 100% fully dyed Swiss, I'm calling bullshit again because it isn't. And that's okay. I mean, you know, obviously hands are going to be made somewhere else. Uh, cases might be, at least the initial case itself is made somewhere else. Uh, the strap possibly is coming from somewhere else. And truth be told, you probably, as the watch company, nine times out of 10, you're not even assembling that watch yourself. You're using a white label company uh, who is assembling it for you. Now, in fairness, those companies are located in Switzerland, but by and large, you know, that cuts down your expense. But, you know, truth be told, you know, if we're thinking about what does it mean to be fully made in a country, Swiss watches by and large, and I'm certainly not talking about Patek or Rolex or the higher end, but by and large, they are made from a melange of 
of components and parts that come from places outside of Switzerland that are brought back into the country, <coughs> excuse me, and then assembled. And they meet the requirements and the requirements are agreed upon and there we go. So, you know, the funny thing that happened was number one, there was already overproduction of a lot of brands. They were making more watches than they could ever hope to sell. They were always pushing those watches to gray market or parallel market resources who were basically absorbing that overproduction and selling it. What then started happening was in a lot of those countries, their economy started to go south and they couldn't absorb at the level that they used to. So try to imagine that you're sweeping watches under a carpet. Sooner or later, those lumps got too big and you've got too much out there. So this is where the rubber has been hitting the road in the last couple of years is that production finally has started to slow down a little bit to meet reality. Um, the gray market has only been able to absorb as much as it could, uh, despite all of the new gray market areas that are popping up. And you know why I feel that I'm pretty safe in making this assumption is that you're seeing some very, uh, very famous, very well-known, formerly highly perceived watch brands that are now being flogged at, you know, 30 cents on the dollar through a lot of these online gray market sources. So, you know, when we're saying how healthy is the industry, it's healthy for some, but not nearly as healthy as it used to be for other people. scary, change is painful. Um, I wouldn't know from personal experience, but what I've been led to understand in the language of addiction is that change is only going to happen when you're in so much pain that you can't imagine any other alternative. So a few changes that I would suggest for the brands, stop feeding the gray market, stop selling directly to gray marketeers. And if you know that you're receiving an inquiry from either an intermediary distributor or even a retailer who is planning on transshipping your product to a gray market so they can cop a quick 20%, stop doing business with them. It's not worth it. For the distributor, make some hard but fair decisions. Is it worth it for you to continue with a retailer who is not paying you, number one? Number two, is it maybe a better idea that if you still love the brand and you still want to work with it that you consider possibly helping that brand set up a direct sale so a business to customer model whereby you still have the distribution rights but you can actually sell directly to the customer on behalf of the brand and in fact believe it or not you'll improve your margin from 33 percent uh, i.e. 17% or 20% to a full 50% or actually even higher if you're the distributor. So maybe that's another thing to consider. Now, here are the pain points and here are the things that are going to be hard um, for everybody. There are too many brands. I'm sorry I said that because already it sounds very mean and very nasty and it's not meant to be. And I want to be clear that when I say that there are too many brands, that doesn't mean that I think there are too many people in the watch business. I just think that there are too many brands in a traditional brick and mortar setup for all of them to be successful. I do think, however, that there is room for every brand. So that sounds a little bit contradictory and let me kind of air that out a little bit further. There are a number of brands that do well on a direct to customer business model. Now, it's not as traditional. It's not as easy to do because it actually involves 
the brand having to engage with a customer, the brand having to do some legwork, the brand having to really be a full service operation. And some brands have embraced this and done well. And I'm, I'm a little bit spoiled because I cut my teeth with Doxa watches in North America. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me because on the one hand, my original role was just to do sales, but then that involved into doing marketing PR as well, as well as taking care of the customer service issues, as well as dealing with retailers. So in three short years, I actually got a very good schooling and grounding on all the aspects of the business, at least in terms of if you were going to run um, a North American subsidiary. And I think part of it is for anyone involved in this business is having a realistic understanding of what's possible and calibrating your expectations to match that. And for some of the old guard, and this is not about age, this is just about when people started or what what type of... Um, what type of company or back or setup they came up in. If you are used to the idea that you have to be making a base salary of six figures, that you are not going to travel anything other than business class, and that you're going to insist on full per diems and all expense paid dinners with tomahawk steaks and bottomless champagne and all of those trimmings, it's going to be very hard for you to evolve and compete. And I just need to be very clear that unless you're a handful of brands, it's getting harder and harder out there. There is not enough food in the refrigerator to feed everybody at the level that they want to be fed. But having said that, for those who are going to play the game realistically, who are going to basically understand what they can afford, what they can't, and what is a realistic, reasonable return for their efforts, they're going to evolve and continue to do very well. So I think those are some of the pieces. And as I, getting back to the brand, some of them are just going to have to go away. I know that sounds awful and it sucks when your company fails. It sucks when things don't work out. But sooner or later, it's going to be reality for everybody that you can't make more watches than there are actual people who want to go out and buy the watch. So that's an overproduction issue, but it's also a reality. There's a reason why there aren't 5 million car companies all vying. There are a handful. Watch companies are going to start growing in the same way, and it's going to be a culling of the herd, for lack of a better way to put it. That's not a bad thing. That's actually the natural evolution of business. And it's something that the watch industry has gone through several times, even in the short time that I've been involved in it uh, since the early 2000s. And it's going to continue to evolve that way. But once again, there's a reason why Basel World is shrinking. There is a reason why, even with booths being less and less expensive, that fewer and fewer brands are willing to invest the money. There is a reason why fewer and fewer retail partners are willing to travel even to Las Vegas if they're based in North America for an annual fair. The reality of how much better the business is going to get is starting to sink in. And it's a reality check and it's a painful one, but the more people embrace it and investigate, how can they pivot? How can they adjust to make this happen? And uh, if you've never listened to it before, and if you're into podcasts, I suggest you check out Shannon Kaysen. He makes something called, I want to say it's called Homemade, uh, but I will announce it again another time. 
but I think it's Shannon Kaysen's homemade podcast, but he's brilliant. But one of the things he talks about, because he's about my same vintage and also, uh, he's also a Northern youth. He's from Michigan. I'm from Ohio. But what Shannon was talking about was that sometimes you have to accept the reality that things are not going to turn out the way that you want them to. And that's at a moment where you have to kind of make that assessment. Now, it doesn't mean you have to quit doing something that you love or even that you like, but you might need to flip the script a little bit and figure out a way that you can change your approach that might be a bit more successful. So as for myself, you know, I had always thought, wow, I'd I'd love to be, you know, the brand manager for brand A. And, you know, I got to do that on a lower level. And then finally, I realized that after chasing that dream, that it necessarily, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted. It, in fact, now that I look back on it, and now that I've interacted with a lot of people who do have that role, it's definitely something that I don't want to do right now. But I found my niche um, in working as a consultant with several brands and getting to contribute my part without the stress and the anxiety of trying to carry the whole thing on my shoulders. I sleep a lot better. I've lost a, you know, a good amount of weight and uh, I'm a happier person. But a lot of that was me flipping the script and not necessarily walking away from the watch business, but finding out maybe where a more realistic niche and a better fit for me was within it. And I would say the same thing to those people who have been distributing and they keep chasing after any brand that they can get and they keep pumping it through the gray market and they see that their margins continually thin out, that maybe it's time to focus on one or two brands that you believe in, or maybe it's time to adjust your distribution model so that you're not just the distributor, but you can also be an official um, online direct retail partner. You'll actually make even more money. And again, that's going to come down to a decision about where does your passion lie? And if it doesn't motivate you anymore, then maybe it's time to move on to something else too. Now, I'm certainly not a life coach. Uh, I can't tell everybody that everything is going to be all right if we make these adjustments. But, you know, the simple reality is this. The gray market will eventually consume itself because sooner or later, the water is going to drain so far down that there's not going to be any more water to support any of the boats, let alone a few of them. It is going to get to a point where the brands cannot continue to keep feeding it directly because their customers are going to continually move away and stop carrying that brand. It's going to get to a point where the customer is going to feel like, you know what, I'm just kind of, it was fun for a hobby for a few years and I have a desk full of watches that I never wear. And now I'm into baseball cards or now I'm into fountain pens or I'm, I'm into that next thing. The, you know, the brands that do well, they do well for a reason. There is a reason why Patek is as strong as it is. There is a reason why Rolex is as strong as it is. And believe me, it's not just, wow, they've got great marketing or they had this great watch once or, you know, whatever. They do a lot of different things every day that set them apart from the other brands. There is a reason why people go to work for Rolex and they pretty much tend to stay there indefinitely. And the same for Patek. Whereas you look at pretty much every other major brand, they come and go. And it's almost like being a professional soccer player that every season they're maybe going to change teams. It's not that they're bad people or doing a bad job. And it's not that the other brands are necessarily bad companies. But it's just a different way of approaching things. And it's a different way of looking at it. And I think... What anybody wanting to get into the industry 
at whatever angle it's going to be, needs to make that decision. Do I want a quick fix or do I want a long-term relationship? And I'm going to borrow from Barry Hearn, uh, the famous sports promoter in Britain. And he gave a wonderful talk on the Men in Blazers podcast. Uh, and it was about the things that you learn owning a professional soccer team, which I realize a lot of people won't feel there are a lot of parallels, but I feel that there are. And one of the things you know, that he always talks about is this kind of instant need that business owners or business managers have which will drive them to make bad decisions and do foolish things because it's impetuous and it's impulsive a lot of that you know the parallel in the watch industry i think can be well we're just going to dump this percentage of watches into the gray market this one time and it's going to improve things and the board of directors will get off my ass because we made a lot of money in this quick sale or we're going to partner with this soccer team and do this huge promotion or we're going to spend all of this money uh on this insta famous influencer or you know or what have you and the thing of it So that's about 30 or 40 minutes of your life you're never going to get back, but I do appreciate you tuning in. We obviously are getting closer and closer to Basel World. I've been in touch with a few brand owners and a few interesting folks who have agreed to sit down and hold forth, um, and that's going to be coming, so please stay tuned. Till then, Tempest Fujit.